Our sermon passage today is Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Well, in uh, C.S. Lewis's classic, Prince Caspian, part of the Chronicles of Narnia series, we find Narnia controlled by a people called the Telmarines. They're led by King Miraz. And although Prince Caspian is the rightful heir to the throne, once Miraz has a son of his own who can be king, he seeks to kill Caspian. For Miraz, his power and his own control are his greatest treasures, and he will tolerate no rival to his throne. At one point, he tells the young Caspian, why I should like to know what more anyone could wish for than to be king. The battle continues between Miraz and Caspian until the very end for there can only be one true king of Narnia. And today we see something, a setting that's quite similar in the Gospel of Matthew. A king is on the throne, but he hears word of a rival, one who would claim to be king of the Jews. What would he do? Well, church, we're working our way through the first two chapters of the book of the Gospel of Matthew during this Advent season. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples, and he wrote this gospel primarily for a Jewish audience to show Jesus as the King of the Jews. Thus far in our study, we've seen Jesus born as God with us, Emmanuel. We've seen him come in, as King in the line of David. And we've seen him to be the promised son of Abraham, come to bring blessing to the world. And now this morning, in the passage Ashley just read for us, we see the first hint in Matthew of opposition to the king. 
So with our time together, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the arrival of Jesus through the eyes of three people, three different perspectives from three different characters in Matthew 2, 1 through 12. First, Herod. Second, the religious leaders. And third, the wise men. Herod, the religious leaders, and the wise men. So first, Herod. Herod appears on the scene there in verse 1. Matthew writes that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Uh, Herod was a king established in Jerusalem by Rome uh, around 40 B.C., Uh, Rome had power over the land of Israel, and so Herod, though kind of not a full Israelite, was named king of the Jews and reigned for approximately 40 years. He was called Herod the Great, and he did some great things, but for the most part, he was quite evil. One renowned scholar calls him an unscrupulous tyrant. And so Herod here receives news from wise men from the east. We'll get to them later. And it's no news, or it's news no unscrupulous tyrant would like to hear. They're saying, as they arrive in Jerusalem, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Herod, the king of the Jews for decades at this point, hears this report and is not at all pleased. In fact, he's greatly disturbed. We see that in verse 3. Matthew writes that he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. It makes sense, right? A baby has been born and has been called a king. But, But Herod's the king. From Herod's perspective, this unwanted rival must not be allowed to persist in this sort of rebellion against him. He must be squashed. But Herod's, Herod's clever. He plays innocent with the wise men. He, he gets information from the, the teachers, which we'll look at later. And he, he gets this information about where this prophesied king, this Messiah of the Jews, would be born. And then he, he tells the wise men to go on ahead and, and find out more about where this child might be located. Verse 8, he sends these wise men to a city called Bethlehem. And he says, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. As we'll see next week, Herod's desire is as far from worship as humanly possible. He wants to kill Jesus. He wants to annihilate any sort of threat to his power. So he fools the wise men, and they seem to believe his motives are are pure. He sends them on their way. And it's interesting that Herod desires to kill Jesus, but kind of unbeknownst to him, He's actually being used by God as a sort of accomplice to the praise of Jesus, isn't he? Do you see that? Herod's an instrument here in getting not praise for himself, but true praise to the true king. So he might think he's the the smart one. He's actually getting used a little bit by the, the, the smartest ruler of the universe. In his little mind, he's thinking... I'm going to get this to turn my way. But really what he's doing is more efficiently getting the wise men to Jesus so they might praise him. 
You know, I think God often works in ways that seem ironic to us. And he does that to show us that while we might have sort of semblances of authority and control and power, he reigns. He alone reigns. But beloved church, Herod isn't merely a picture of the most of, of just the most grotesque and evil of dictators. Herod is actually the picture of each of our hearts ensnared in sin. See, see, the Bible doesn't, doesn't sort of describe sin as a mere mistake or even a weakness on our part. The Bible defines our sin as rebellion. Each one of us has been made in the image of God to show his glory to one another. We've been made, created, designed to glorify him and to make his kingdom, his rule, his throne great. But in our sin, we've, we've attempted to unseat him from that throne. We've attempted to set up ourselves as kings in his place. Eve, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, as she commits the first sin we see in Scripture, eats the fruit of the tree. Why? So she can be like God. Friends, perhaps you hear that definition for sin this morning, and it seems a bit harsh. I mean, you've, sure, you've done some less than desirable things, but you've never, like, wanted to usurp God. God's God. What's the big deal? Maybe Herod did, but, you know, he was a bad guy. Not you. Friend, be honest. The wise men eventually make it to Jesus, and there in verse 11, they fall down and worship him. And isn't that so often what you desire? What I desire? We live our lives with this consuming desire for our spouses or our friends or our children or our employers or our parents to fall down and worship us, worship what we need, worship our schedules, our preferences, our gifts. And when another person, even somebody we claim to dearly love, kind of gets in the way of us receiving that affirmation and praise and worship we so crave, we lash out at them. Or we maintain sort of this bitter bitterness boiling up in our hearts. Our sin means we want to be served. We want to be worshipped. Sin is not just a mistake. Sin is rebellion. Sin is a consuming lust to be like God. And so church, before we see Jesus as this wonderful king that he is, King Jesus needs to unsettle us. We see there in verse 3 that to Herod, the king's ears, this news that Jesus, the king, has arrived troubles him. Friend, have you ever been troubled by Jesus? If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so happy you're here. We hope you feel warmly welcomed I wonder, though, if as you've thought about Jesus, have you always thought, like, yeah, I'm cool with him? I mean, he was a good person. Those who follow him tend to be good citizens in society. What harm is there in Jesus? Friend, Jesus 
isn't just a harmless teacher. Jesus claims to be the king. And if he's the king, that means you're not. That means that you don't get to call the shots. That means that your way isn't always best. That means that you must submit to his rule. And if that offends you, then you're probably beginning to understand who Jesus truly is. He hasn't just come to help us out. He hasn't just come to teach us good stuff. He's come to overturn our allegiances, to transform our lives, to redeem us from that lust for control and to bring us back into right obedience and submission and joy to the rightful king. The Bible is clear. We must not just be okay with Jesus. We must either obey him or reject him. See, Herod's heart posture here towards this apparent new king of the Jews is one of self-worship, and it's totally different from the wise men who want to give their worship, not receive it for themselves, but to, to give it to Jesus. We'll see more of Herod's diabolical plan next week, Lord willing. But for now, let's look at another perspective in this story. Let's see the Jewish leaders the Jewish leaders. So they come up in verse 4. So this troubled Herod starts to put two and two together, and he, he remembers probably that there's these prophecies of a Messiah, a, a Christ, and an anointed one come to rule and reign in, in Israel. And, and so he gathers the religious professionals together. We see there the chief priests and the, the scribes. The scribes were lawyers of sorts. So Herod gathered these, gathers these men together and he inquires of them where this Christ was to be born. And they give him an answer and it's the right answer. Good job, religious leaders. You are a professional. There in verse 6, they, they reference for Herod what Jack read for us at the beginning of our service this morning. This prophecy from Micah hundreds of years earlier. And you, O Bethlehem, speaking of this city in which Jesus was born, and you in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Micah had prophesied of a ruler to come, a shepherd over the precious people of God, his own possession. This ruler would come from the small town of Bethlehem. And here it's starting to all come to pass, just as he said. And church, that's all we see about the religious leaders in this passage. So what more is there to say? I think that what we see these leaders do do isn't as significant as what we see them not do. I mean, think about it. Rumors are floating around the city of Jerusalem that these sort of wise men have come from afar in search of the king of the Jews. Herod's freaking out. The city's abuzz, and these leaders are now brought in to share their expertise with the king. It seems like everything's kind of coming to a head, and that's all they do. They're done, at least for now. One author puts it like this. All this time, the religious leaders of Jerusalem know from their own scriptures where the Messiah is to be born. 
But not even the visit of foreign dignitaries piques their curiosity enough to travel six miles to Bethlehem to find out if there's any truth in the report. Church, as I thought about it, I don't, I don't think we can really know exactly what the root of their inaction was. I mean, was it, was it unbelief? Was it apathy? Going forward in the Gospel of Matthew, we'll see that a lot of their, their hatred against Jesus is because they want to protect their power, much like Herod. But I don't really know what they're thinking here. What I do know, though, is that their inaction is very telling of their hearts. It seems, it seems that their faith in this coming Messiah is just not going to get them to action. It seems that, that they're not going to share the excitement of the wise men and, and try to locate the king to worship him. It seems that they know all the right answers, but their hearts are not warmed towards God's Messiah. A pastor in nearby Virginia, in nearby here in Virginia, David Platt, says the spiritual state of the priests and the scribes is a sobering reminder that mere knowledge of the scriptures is not enough. Dear friend, if, if you claim to be a Christian, you have all the right answers. You know how to respond to criticisms of your faith. You know right theology, but you don't have a desire for God, a hunger to know him. I'm not sure you're the Christian you think you are. Does your faith in Jesus stop there? Or does it lead you to pursue him? Are you content with sort of mere academic knowledge, which will get you good with all the folks in church? You'll be able to fool everybody. Are you okay with maintaining sort of mere academic knowledge, but with no sort of heart affection for Christ himself? J.C. Ryle says, Let us all beware of resting satisfied with head knowledge. What is the state of our hearts? Perhaps you've grown up in church like I did. Perhaps these truths seem like old news. And because of that, perhaps you're unsure how to ask, answer those questions I just asked. If that's you, I'd encourage you, think of someone else in this church family who to you really seems to love Jesus. All your interactions with them just... I think that guy, I think that lady, I think that, that friend loves Jesus. Go to them. Ask them to pray for you. Don't, don't waste your life pretending to be something you know you're not. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with the Lord. Be honest with those around you in this church family who love you and have covenanted together to watch over your souls until we all persevere to heaven. Pursue true joy in knowing and loving the king, not just knowing about him. So we see the character of Herod. And we see in him this heart that hates Jesus' claim to kingship. And in his heart, we see all our hearts in our sin. And then we see these religious leaders, and we see this danger of knowing about Jesus, but not loving him. 
Finally, let's see the wise men. These are the principal characters in this story. And they show up right there in verse 1. In the days of Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. These men were probably not kings, like the old Carol goes. Uh, the word for wise men can also be translated magi, which you've probably heard that word before. These magi were, were among other things, astrologers. One scholar calls them students of the stars. It's possible, likely, that they hailed from Babylon. But beyond that, there's not much more we know about them. Much is left to speculation. I mean, how did the star appear to them? Was it sort of like a crazy natural wonder? How, how did they connect that star with the birth of a Jewish king? Not super sure. But what is certain is that God is at work to lead these magi to Israel in search of Israel's king for his purposes in the life of Christ. So they journey. I don't know how long, but it must have been quite a, a travel. Uh, once they arrive in Israel, they go to the capital city, Jerusalem. I, it, it's interesting, too, isn't it, that, that God causes the Magi to travel to Bethlehem via Jerusalem. I mean, from our perspective, looking back, 2020, it, it seems like it would have been a far easier for the Lord to kind of lead them straight to Bethlehem, straight to Jesus. That seems like the better plan to us. God's plan is different, isn't it? He allows news to spread to Jerusalem. He allows Herod to hear about this. He allows opposition to begin to rise up against his sent Messiah. He's in control. The religious leaders will not put Jesus to death until it is time, but opposition has begun. So these magi, these wise men, get help from Herod and the Jewish leaders, and they begin the several-mile trip from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. <clears throat> we read there in verse 9 that the, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And their long journey is finally coming to an end, and they've succeeded. They're about to meet the king, the king of the Jews. God had, had brought them this far to this place for this specific reason. And church, we don't really see God mentioned a whole lot in this passage, but he's everywhere, isn't he? You see the sovereignty of God all over this, this text? I mean, who put that star in the sky? Who, who was fulfilling Micah's 600, 700, whatever it was, year-old prophecy? Who was leading those, those wise men? Who was bringing worship to his incarnate son? Who would later lead the wise men to depart for their home another way and avoid the evils of Herod? God, king over all, king over everything, this, this king over wicked rulers, this king over foreign magi, this king over all of history. John Piper says, God wields the universe to make his son known and worshipped. And friends, that has not stopped. God wields 
the universe. You think about picking up a hammer or a drill to do some work. God does that with all creation for the purpose of the glory of the name of his son. So these wise men brought by God's hand come to the end of their journey, and what are they? They are joyful. But they don't just rejoice. Do you see that? They rejoice exceedingly. But they don't only rejoice exceedingly. They rejoice exceedingly with joy. But they don't only rejoice exceedingly with joy. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Herod, back in Bethlehem, is is sort of eaten alive and his tooth and nail striving to hold on to his power. But these wise men from afar are finding true peace, true rest, true joy in the worship of the true king. This one with ultimate power who will never worry about it being taken away from him. The great late scholar Leon Morris writes, Matthew's expression indicates that when the wise men saw their star again, they were more than mildly pleased. Deliriously happy may be an overstatement, but it was something like that. Church, these men were over the moon. Their joy was full. Do you want joy like that? I know I do. You will not find it apart from Christ. If you seek ultimate joy in any place except Christ, you will not find ultimate joy. You will experience joy. God's gracious. He's created us in his image to enjoy and to rejoice in many of the good things that he's created. But we can only truly enjoy the things he's created when we find our ultimate joy in the creator who created them, in Christ alone, the giver of all good gifts. See, true wise men, true wise women, will find their greatest joy in the king, not just the gifts of the king. Beloved, don't be consumed by a pursuit of joy in lesser things. Find joy in Christ and who he is, and what he's done for you, and what he's continuing to do for you. Think of him interceding for you in prayer right now. Rejoice in him. Seek to know him in his word. Seek to commune with him in prayer. Instead of being consumed like Herod by these lesser joys, find joy in the one who was consumed for you who took your rebellion for you so you could be saved, so you might truly worship him from a sincere heart. See, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 35, Jesus is again called the king of the Jews, but this time under very different circumstances. There we read, And when they had crucified Jesus, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. 
I wonder what if Herod had envisioned that that was going to come in 30-odd years. What would he have thought? You think he would have relaxed a bit? You think he would have sort of poo-pooed, downplayed this so-called power of this new king of the Jews? Do you think he would have rest content in knowing that his kingdom was well in hand? Probably. I mean, to our eyes, what kind of king ends his life by dying as a common criminal? Not a powerful one. No earthly king, that's for sure. This king is no earthly king. This is God's king. And he's not come to lead a political revolution. He's come to bring new spiritual life. And so for this king, the cross is not the end of his reign. It's the beginning of it. It's the crushing of his foe, as we'll see more next week. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is what Jesus was born to do. He didn't come to unseat Herod's political throne. He didn't come merely to teach good morals and perform mighty miracles. He himself said that he had come to die, to take on the sins of any who would trust in him, to save sinners. Jesus came to make a great transaction. We don't use banks much anymore. Usually we just pick up our phones. But when you go into the bank and you make a big transaction, you realize something important is taking place. Jesus has made the greatest transaction. He has come to take our dirty, rebellious, God-hating sin on himself and die the death we deserved, bearing God's wrath for us so we could then receive That's the other part of the transaction. Receive his clean, holy, God-loving righteousness for ourselves and therefore be accepted by God. And not just accepted, but loved, cherished by God like he cherishes his only son. So we could be his children. That's the gospel. Friend, that's the way to be saved. If you have questions about that, you're free to talk to me after the service or those who have been up here somebody sitting next to you, we would love to tell you that we aren't here at church on Sundays because we think we're better than everybody else, but because we realize how sinful we are. And the only way we can be saved is through a perfect, sinless, crucified Savior. If you want hope, that's where you find it. And beloved church, do you see what the Magi do in verse 11? They go into the house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense and myrrh. Gentile astrologers bending low to the king of the Jews. This king has come not just for Jews, but for all nations. The Magi bring him tribute. They give him gifts, for he is king. See, friend, Jesus is not just our friend. He's not just a sacrificial savior. He's the king. 
the one who deserves and demands utmost allegiance, utmost worship, the one who's bringing us back to the purpose for which God made us, to give him glory, to give him praise, and ultimately the praise of King Jesus will be the end result of all creation. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, you will praise him one day. In Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul says, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Dear church, as we worship King Jesus, we're preparing for where the whole world is headed. We may seem like the minority now. We won't then. Jesus will receive all praise. So what are your rival kings? Where might you be tempted to split allegiance? as Jesus says, to serve two masters. Repent. Pursue the true king. The late pastor and church planter, Jack Miller, said, when the heart has seen the king, nothing really matters but the glory of the king. Church, wouldn't it be awesome to embrace that kind of freedom? Wouldn't it be awesome to embrace that sort of singularity and unity of purpose and goal? Finding our ultimate joy in the only thing that matters. The glory that will last for eternity. Not sort of stocking up praise and worship for ourselves and needing it and asking for affirmation and, and greatest joy in getting the love and support of people around us that we idolize but giving our allegiance to Jesus alone, the one who has already accepted us by his sacrifice in our place. Loudon Valley, brothers and sisters, let's give our allegiance to this king alone because that will be our eternal occupation. One of the verses we'll sing in a few minutes says, in the heavenly country bright, need we no created light. Jesus, it's light, it's joy, it's crown. Jesus, it's sun, which goes not down. There, forever, may we sing alleluias to our king. Let's prepare for that day by singing, but first, let's pray together. Lord, we confess our rival kings to you. They probably look different for every different soul in here. But there are things that we are tempted and have tendencies to bow down before instead of you. So, Lord, we bow before you now as the wise men did that night 2,000 years ago. We may not be on our knees right now, but we are bending our hearts low to your throne. Forgive us. We turn to you. 
our ultimate allegiance is to you, King Jesus, not to anybody else, not to anything else. So we ask even more this Advent season, rule in our hearts, reign over us, use us for your glory, and come back soon to take us to that heavenly country bright. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.